This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Tom Davenport, the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College, co-founder of the International Institute of Analytics, fellow at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, and senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics. He teaches analytics and executive programs at Babson, Harvard Business School, Harvard School of Public Health, and MIT Sloan School. Tom pioneered the concept of competing on analytics in 2007. Having authored some 20 books and 200 articles, his most recent book is on AI Advantage, How to Put Artificial Intelligence Revolution to Work. Professor Davenport, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So perhaps we can begin with your background. Uh, some defining moments that led you to a career in analytics. Uh, I know you have a PhD from Harvard. Uh, is it in psychology? Uh, close, sociology. sociology. Same building. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, so how does a sociologist end up doing analytics? Well, you know, I did some um, statistical computing um, when I was an undergraduate. When I got to Harvard, they needed somebody to um, help out with social science-oriented computing in um, William James Hall, the um, home of psychology and sociology and a little bit of anthropology, I think. And so I did that for a while. Um, is great. I learned a lot about computing. Um, I could have, um, had I only been in a different computing center, I might have ended up at Microsoft because Bill Gates was working at the same time um, on, a, on a, another computer. But um, so I did that for a while. And then I graduated and I um, taught sociology for a while. I thought, eh, this is kind of boring sitting in my office all the time. Um, writing papers that nobody's terribly interested in. And so I um, took a job at Harvard Computing Center as head of end-user computing and really got more and more interested in computing and analytics and so on. I um, ended up eventually going to a consulting firm that did IT strategy, kind of put the analytics stuff on the back burner for a number of years. And then I was doing all this work in knowledge management and decided that some of the same ideas that were being applied to knowledge management could be applied to knowledge that comes from data um, and you know which is basically the same as analytics and so I did some research in that space and started writing about it and have been doing it ever since pretty much that was more than 20 years ago that's that's great that's a wonderful story you've observed uh, that AI hasn't transformed businesses in a fundamental way, right? And you've argued about, uh, you know, uh, that they haven't been sweeping reinventions in business that the AI has potential of achieving. Can, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the potential is there, but, you know, I like to cite Amara's law that suggests that we tend to overestimate these effects in the short run and underestimate them in the in the long run, I'm, 
I, you know, I think there's still a lot of experimental approaches to AI, pilots and prototypes and proofs of concept, not nearly as many production deployments. So that's one thing that hinders transformation. And I think, you know, AI is right now better suited to smaller scale impacts um, just because it tends to perform particular tasks, not entire jobs or certainly not entire business processes. So you, you have to string together a lot of it if you really want to have a transformative impact. I think a lot of companies believe that it might be more transformative than it's turned out to be. Um, I, I um, was talking, again, I have a class at Babson on AI for business for MBAs, and I had a couple of guest speakers from AI-oriented companies on Saturday, and they were both saying something that I agree with. It's boring AI that really seems to be winning out. <laughs> um, you know, extracting information from documents, um, comparing it to other documents, um, making predictions using machine learning, which is sort of boring since we've been doing it for a long time, um, and you know things along those lines. So still quite useful, and if done on a large scale, could be quite transformative. But in general, I think it hasn't um, transformed the world quite as quickly as many people thought it would. Do, do you have any um, uh, favorites where you, you see that uh, some companies are doing uh, a great job in this regard? Well, I, if to the degree that they are, it's usually because they're doing a lot of different projects. I mean, um, you, if you look at the most aggressive banks, Capital One, they told me they had over a thousand AI projects. Google has, you know, several thousand. They had several. I don't even know that they count them anymore. So um, you can do a lot of things with AI as. Um, I think Kevin Kelly suggested it's like electricity. You can power a lot of different parts of a business with it. And, but if you really want to have an impact, you have to have a lot, of, a lot of different things going on. Individual projects, I mean, you know, you look at an organization like Amazon. I was just reading today that um, um, drone delivery, which was, you know, a kind of a, a really aggressive moonshot-oriented projects, Bezos promised it in... 2018, uh, I haven't had any land on my porch yet um, delivering packages, and they say it's a bit in trouble. Amazon Go, I think, a, a use of, of um, AI that was also quite aggressive, and that's working for them. It's arguably one of the more expensive approaches to building a convenience store, but once they, I think, spread it out to other parts of their their retail empire, it will probably be worth all the effort to, you know, develop it and, and install it. But even there, Bezos says, you know, the great bulk of what we do is, I think I love his term, quietly but meaningfully improving core operations. So that to me is, you know, a lot of less ambitious projects spread around the enterprise. Yeah. So, so in, in your book, uh, The AI Advantage, uh, you talk a lot about AI and cognitive technologies. So, so what are some of these use cases around cognitive technologies that you see being deployed? Well, to be honest, um, I, <laughs> that, that book was written when I was transitioning out of using that term. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't really, I never really distinguished all that much between cognitive technologies and, 
and AI as a term. I just thought that having used AI for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, uh, 50 years as a term, that it would be more interesting to describe it in some other way. Um, some of my friends persuaded me that uh, uh, IBM was the only one that was really sticking with that term. So um, I pretty much dropped it. And, you know, I, on reflection, I think it probably does suggest more about, you know, how the brain works and so on than we really know enough to say. So I'm, I'm less enamored of it than I was. I mean, you know, I, it would be fine with me if it came back, but I think it's retreated somewhat over the last several years. I see. You, you also talk about companies like Google and Facebook as uh, digital natives uh, who, who are implementing AI more aggressively than others. Uh, and, and also, especially you, you talk about small to medium-sized businesses uh, are, are less uh, aggressive in this regard. So what do you think uh, is preventing the smaller businesses uh, um, you know, I think it's it's almost any it's the same thing was preventing them from using analytics in a big way. I think it's lack of data, um, certainly. It's lack of awareness of what the possibilities are. It's lack of people whose job it is to kind of think about how technology you know might really change the way we do our work. Um, so um, those tend to be the factors. I think there are some great opportunities. Occasionally, I'll find a small business. There's one south of Boston that I just joined the advisory board of called Radius um, Financial Group, and they do mortgage um, uh, issuing for um, consumers, and they use AI all over the place, um, AI for mortgage decisions, AI for extracting information out of 200 different types of mortgage documents. Um, some of the more robotic process automation oriented stuff, which we can debate whether it's AI or not, but it's you know certainly related. So, and and I think it's doing great. So you could do a lot, but just not that many companies do at that at that size. So, so you you think Google, Amazon, Facebook, they they have a competitive advantage, largely because of the the massive amount of data they're collecting. Certainly, that's a huge factor. I think it's also one of the reasons why banks are doing a lot in that space, because they've been collecting data on our financial transactions for an awfully long time. Um, you, know, you Certainly, companies that have been doing this for a while, I wrote a piece recently about um, credit scoring and Experian and fraud um, prevention in credit cards. You know, that started in the uh, I don't know, eight, 1980s or so. So um, obviously a whole lot of data about credit card transactions. So I think having a lot of data, as we know, big, big prerequisite for doing a lot with, with AI. I think you don't see it a lot also in business to business firms because they don't even have that much customer data. You know, they might have a couple of hundred customers. Um, makes it hard to, I think, accumulate to accumulate enough data to do certainly you know serious machine learning mm -hmm. yeah no, that's very true very true in the b2b context is much harder uh you just got your crm system and uh very little you can do there 
Exactly. Although there, I, um, I don't know if you know this guy, um, Steve Pratt, who's the CEO of Noodle out in San Francisco. He's concluded that, you know, there are enough issues related to consumer um, AI issues, privacy and acceptance and so on, that he's really trying to focus that business on, on B2B. I don't know if he'll be successful at that strategy. So let, let's, let's talk about uh, business models that are emerging largely because of AI. C can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the, to me, the um, most prominent one is the platform business, the multi-sided platform, you know, the business model that companies like Uber and Airbnb and um, so on have used quite successfully. Uh, that business would not really be possible without AI, um, both to sort of make the match between what consumers want and what you have available, whether it's, you know, drivers or um, places to stay or something like that. And um, then to kind of optimize the whole supply chain for it, telling um, drivers the best way to travel, et cetera, or best way to deliver food. Um, all that sort of thing, I think, would not be possible. And uh, that platform has turned out to be a very successful one in terms of valuations, at least historically, um, much higher valuations than asset-oriented businesses or financial businesses or services businesses. So um, I think we really largely have AI to thank for the ability to do that kind of work. Um, I, there's a guy in the Boston area named Barry Liebert who sort of persuaded me of this. And he's working with a lot of um, companies to try to transform them into platform-oriented businesses with the, with the help of AI. We did an edX course together on, it's called Leading with AI, but it's really about platform businesses and, and their use of AI. This episode is brought to you by Expertify. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Expertify provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Expertify differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Expertify Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expertify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. Switching gears to uh, future work uh, and uh, what AI is going to do to jobs. So uh, there are dire predictions out there, but but you are someone who's, you know, provide a contrarian view that this is not, uh, uh, there's no need to be alarmed and uh, humans uh, are going to still remain in control and AI is going to augment the work we do. Uh, so so uh, what, what kind of uh, data are you looking at when you are thinking about these things? Well, um, it's not terribly rigorous data, I would say, but uh, I mean, I suppose it's fairly rigorous in that um, 
I don't think any of those people who made those dire predictions had any data whatsoever. It was all just hypotheses about what was going to happen. There, you know, you can classify jobs. I, I like the McKinsey analysis, which started out in a very dire fashion, as you suggest, by saying that um, you know, over half of jobs could be automated. But then they started to factor in other considerations like, well, would it be worth the trouble? And how quickly would this industry adopt technology? And they eventually reduced it down to 5%. And even that was at some point in the, in the near future. So, you know, I try to be open about, uh, and keep my mind open about this. And I think certainly there, it's possible that we could have large scale um, job elimination. I think it's a little more likely, you know, now that we're in the kind of economy that we're in, companies want to um, free up as much uh, um, uh, labor, human labor as possible and convert it into automated technologies. And then some of the surveys that I've done with Deloitte suggest that fairly high proportions, almost two thirds of managers in the U.S. say they who are familiar with AI say that they would like to automate as many jobs as possible. On the other hand, it's always in, in the Deloitte surveys, it's always been a kind of a low priority objective to do um, automation. But when I go out into companies, I don't find many that have automated a lot of jobs at all. So, you know, maybe it's just coming and we don't know what I tried to do in my, um, first book on AI, which was called Only Humans Need Apply, was to say, well, um, we think, I, I co-authored this with Julia Kirby, we think that augmentation is a more likely and a more desirable future than large-scale automation, but you don't want to be complacent about it because it's certainly the possibility is there. So what you should do is try to think about how you can add value to these machines so you don't lose your job or to pick a, pick a type of job that is not likely to be automated anytime soon. So um, as I say, I, I don't wanna insist, oh no, this is large scale automation is not going to happen, but A, we haven't seen it happen, and B, I think um, there are an awful lot of, of examples of people working alongside smart machines. That's actually what my next book is going to be about. It's a collection of examples of people who are working with AI day to day already. And um, my co-author is from Singapore. We've gathered, I don't know, seven or eight so far. We hope to gather 30 or 40 just to give people a sense of what it's like to work alongside a, a machine all day long. So, so um, do you see that uh, some of the uh, low cognitive uh jobs uh, are going to be impacted more like we, we already start to see with the rpa right the robotic process automation is uh, automating a lot of the back office stuff um similarly uh, you know you're seeing call centers disappearing with the advent of chatbots um so so perhaps some of the third world economies are more to worry about than some of the more advanced economies yeah i think that's true and i, I would um, I've never seen any systematic analyses of it. Companies don't really like to talk about this very much, so it's hard to get good data. But my guess is it's already had more of an impact on the 
business process outsourcing industry than it has on you know um, uh, the companies that that hired those firms and you know every company I go to they say oh we're freeing up people to do things tasks that are more you know consistent with their capabilities I um, sometimes suspect that there's this conspiracy of silence about what they really want to do and you know they're there was, I don't know if you saw it, there was that article in the New York Times about the back rooms of Davos where people were um, whispering to each other, no, we're really going to cut out lots and lots of heads, but I haven't, haven't seen it yet. And I think that it's probably not a great business strategy to do that because um, it hit, you know, anytime we automate a process, it means that we've sort of... Um, uh, poured some kind of systems-related concrete around it. Um, even with supposedly adaptable AI, it makes it harder to change and harder to innovate. And uh, your competitors are likely to do it too, so your margins go down, theirs do too. It's just kind of a race race to the bottom, I think. So, And I'm a human being. I'm pulling for the human beings and all of this. So, <laughs> so, so your, your advice to companies when you think about uh, about the augmentation framework uh, how how would they think about uh, uh, augmented rather than displacing the jobs what what we argued in this book was that there are really two big choices and then a few smaller ones within them the two big choices are um, people are going to either work with smart machines or they're not if they're going to work with them um, then there are choices like, well, okay, are they going to work alongside it day to day as a colleague? Are they going to supervise it, you know, in a managerial role? Or are they going to develop these capabilities? Those were kind of the three options we had. We had different names for them. Uh, step in, step up, blah, blah, blah. Five steps, we called it. And then if you're not going to work with machines, there are sort of two options. One is to pick a, a set of tasks that they're unlikely to perform. Although, you know, that's always challenging because AI takes up new tasks all the time. Or pick something that is likely, um, that likely could be um, automated with a machine, but is unlikely to because it's not economical. It's too small, there are few, too few people doing it. So, you know, pick a very narrow niche. Um, so those were the five strategies for companies. I think, you know, you could start to classify your employees. There are companies that are classifying their employees today on just how potentially automatable is the set of tasks that they perform. Um, Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT has a model for that, and some companies are implementing it, including Chase Bank, for example. Um, but they're not very far along, and I, I think it's going to be a while. And, you know, these, these things just take a long time. We thought that truckers um, would be fully automated now. I don't think a single trucker has probably lost his or her job. Um, Elon Musk said, promised, you know, there'd be Tesla taxis on, on many city streets in 2020. That seems unlikely now as well. Um, so, um, Lots of announcements of, you know, machines can do better than radiologists at diagnosing cancer. 
I'm sure that not a single radiologist has lost a job yet. So yeah, we humans are pretty persistent in hanging on to our uh, to our jobs and professions. Yeah, no, that, that's a very uh, uh, realistic uh, perspective on what's happening on the ground. Uh, so, so let's say a company like a Chase figures out, okay, these jobs or skills are going to be automated, have potential being automated in the next five years, 10 years. So how should they think about reskilling or upskilling? Well, that's a good question. Um, and it's, it's a hard question to, to solve, hard problem to solve, because skills are often sort of job specific. And I've talked to a number of companies about, well, what are you doing in this reskilling process? And the common theme seems to be we're, we're trying to give people IT skills. Um, that's what Amazon is doing in its big um, reskilling effort in distribution centers. Um, to, so we may not need as many humans, you know, putting uh, things in the boxes that little robots are carrying around. So let's teach them how to program, uh, you know, then they'll, they'll at least have some possibility of that kind of employment. I don't think that it's a terribly sophisticated approach to reskilling. Um, one would hope that we would develop some more customized skills that could be applied to a diverse workforce and say, okay, if you want to really add value in this credit card authorization process, here's what you need to know. If you want to really add value to a um, uh, um, driving uh, autonomous driving process, you know, maybe with um, remote um, oversight of driving, which um, some organizations have emphasized. I think that's certainly a transitional step. Um, you know, here's how you might go about doing that. But I, I haven't heard about any of those uh, highly, you know, personalized, customized kinds of reskilling strategies. In in the book, uh, the AI Advantage, you also talk about uh, managing and organizations, uh, you know, social and ethical uh, dimensions when it comes to AI. Maybe you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, I think, um, you know, we don't want to um, get in trouble with our consumers and with the media and so on about this. Um, so I think that um, I tend to be not an alarmist at all about the ethical issues in AI, you know, sure, there is bias, mostly arising from the data that you use to train models. Um, it's almost inherent in the idea of machine learning, because, you know, the particular data set, you, you have to choose a data set is probably not going to be all things that we would want from it. But I also, one of the other areas that I've um, studied and done um, a lot of research and teaching in is human decision-making, and I think it's quite um, clear that there's a lot more bias in human decision-making than there is in AI-based decision-making. So, And the, it's interesting in the discussions of AI bias that, that go on, the same tired old examples keep coming up. Um, so I don't think that its biases are as bad as human biases generally, but um, you don't you don't want to get in trouble about the applications that you do, particularly if they you know involve uh, consumers and so on. So, I think it's important to be 
as transparent as you can about how the models work. Um, uh, it's important to let people know when they're using an AI um, device instead of uh, a human. Um, I can't believe that some organizations have, have tried to do otherwise, but I guess a few have. Um, transparency, of course, is a challenge. The more complex the models get, but you know, I think we're we're making slow progress at getting some degree of transparency, even for things like deep learning models, where you can at least say, well, what are the what are the key variables here, and try to make some sense of them. It's not not easy in some of those models. So, so when, when we look at uh, some of these black boxes, like an IBM Watson, um, you, you think that they haven't been as successful as we had hoped, largely because it's hard to explain what's in the black box? Well, I, you know, I don't know. To me, Watson's problems were not that it was, you know, um, opaque. I Actually, I think that if you... If you really knew a lot about Watson, you could probably, it, I think at least Watson now is a whole collection of different capabilities that um, some even include deep learning, finally. But, you know, there were a lot of Q&A pairs in early Watson anyway that were relatively easy for humans to, to understand. There was some um, logistic regression-based machine learning, which is, you know, not that complex. I think the problem of Watson was, you know, sort of the triumph of marketing over actual capability. And they also, I think, made a mistake in trying to pick off these incredibly difficult problems like treating cancer that the technology was not really up to yet. Um, so I, I don't, I, you know, I think the technology was okay, at least in Watson, I think it was just letting the marketing people run amok in how they advertised it and, and discussed it. So, so you, you see any other uh, exciting products out there that uh, are, you know, delivering on the promise? Well, I'm, I'm quite excited about, in the machine learning space, I'm quite excited about um, automating the process of machine learning and uh, trying to take a number of the, the model creation steps and automating them so that, you know, we get a, a, a well-fitting model without a whole lot of human intervention to do it, um, which to me frees up um, us humans to look at some of the things that we haven't done a great job of, which is persuading the organization to really deploy that model on a production basis and do the change management and so on that we, we need to do. I know it's still a lot of data scientists are not thrilled with the idea of automated machine learning, but um, I the ones who I think I've been exposed to have really learned a lot about how it works, grudgingly at least admit that it can be quite useful, A, in improving their own productivity, and B, in introducing a whole new group of people who are not data scientists, but who, you know, are um, have some idea of how statistics work to be able to create some of these models themselves. So I'm probably most excited about that. I'm, you know, I'm pretty excited, I guess, about... Uh, 
deep learning, but I don't think that it's going to solve all of our problems. You know, I agree with these skeptics like Gary Marcus and Rod Brooks and so on that say, yeah, it's good what, what it's done, but kind of over, oversold a bit as the solution to all of our, all of our problems. So from, from a future work perspective, any parting words for our audience? Well, you know, I think it's, as I, I looked at some of these um, jobs that, where people are already working with, with AI on a day-to-day -day basis, um, some things start to emerge. One is um, uh, it's really going to be challenging if you're an entry-level worker because um, uh, all of those kind of entry-level intellectual tasks anyway are being automated by AI and it's the most experienced, most capable workers who are going to be left. And so if you are trying to enter the workforce for the first time, you know, you really have to work hard to distinguish yourself, to try to get some kind of experience. And it's really hard to do, I think, but um, don't just show up and expect you're going to be, you know, trained because the machines are doing that. Um, the other thing is all of the people I've run across who were kind of early adopters of this are enthusiastic about technology and how to use it and how to, they experiment with it in their, in their work and home lives. And so I think um, if you are, if you have some antipathy toward using technology and trying to learn new technology and so on, you're, you're going to have a tough time in the, in the future workforce. Otherwise, I think, you know, be flexible, try to constantly be thinking about, you know, what can I do that would be a value to this organization that that machines probably can't do terribly well. Some of which, you know, we we're willing to pay for the supervisory things. We've had hedge funds that, you know, all the day to day decisions have been made by computers for a long time. We still have very highly paid hedge fund managers who kind of oversee the process. Um, uh, some of the skills that humans are good at, empathy, we haven't generally paid all that much for empathy in the, in the workplace, unfortunately. Maybe that's why it's not that pleasant to deal with many organizations. But um, hopefully at some point we'll start to value that a little bit more. Creativity, you know, things that machines have historically not been so good at. Well, thank, thank you, Tom. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation. My pleasure. Enjoyed your questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.